Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. But I think that what you're seeing now is um, uh, some real question about NASA's uh, capacity to, to hold the reins in that relationship. It's going to be relying on on SpaceX on this commercial venture to to you know ferry our, our astronauts to the space station as we've already seen and ultimately to the moon. Uh, and so uh, again, with NASA perpetually underfunded, at least relative to its needs and its ambitions, and SpaceX and Blue Origin and the others wildly capitalized over time and increasingly dominant you may well actually have holding the cards someone like Elon Musk who has a very different take on on the power of China as you pointed yes. out Sagar than the United States government and and that is a matter I think of some concern This week, we are very excited to bring you an awesome guest. His name is Jeff Shessel. He just wrote a book called Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground for the Cold War. Now, look, you guys know I love UFOs, aliens, all of that, but we don't actually talk enough about space, the Apollo program, everything behind it. And right now is a perfect time. Richard Branson just went up there. Jeff Bezos is headed there sometime soon. Elon is doing whatever Elon is doing. It's an exciting time to think about where the program started, where things are headed. That's exactly what we do with Jeff. Give him a taste, Marshall. Yeah, this really came about because Sagar and I have a really mutually shared interest in having actually intelligent conversations about space. One of our underlying beefs with the culture war and online hype politics is that everything has to get wrapped into its whole thing. And I think our politics are actually really summed up well by Alex Wilhelm at TechCrunch, where he said, look, dunk on billionaires all you want. Space is a pretty good thing for them to spend money on. Yeah. And there's a lot of nuance there. There's nuance that we get into in this conversation, which is, okay, does spending money on space mean that private commercial ventures have control of space itself? Who owns space? What is the role of the public? There's a bunch of different debates that, you know, as a diverse listenership, all of us are going to come to different positions on. But the key thing here is that Jeff does an amazing job of talking about the present while also girding himself. And once again, the book in the past, really great stuff. So much to cover here. That's a perfect pivot to our bookshop. His book is available there. Someone actually already purchased the book already. I think you may have tweeted this out or something, Sagar, because yeah, it's always it great. Right. It's always great when we see the lead out there, but it is actually officially in our bookshop now. So definitely go check it out there. You help support Jeff, support the show, and most importantly, support independent bookseller. So let's get to the question and answer for you. You guys know the deal. Send us your questions. Email us at realignmentpod2.com or leave a review and rating with your question included on Apple Podcast. Today's comes from Speak For Myself, fiction versus nonfiction. You guys have a lot of authors on the show, which leads me to many great nonfiction book recommendations. I love nonfiction and often get accused of reading too much of it. So with that in mind, what are your favorite fiction books and have these informed your political frameworks in any way. So we've kind of answered this question before. I wanted to take it in a little bit of a different direction. You guys have heard us say that we like Dune and the Ender's Game series and the three-body problem, um, which is part of the Remembrance of Earth's Past series, um, which is coming from China. 
AKA, we need to read more fiction ourselves too. So this is a great call to action for everyone. If you can email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com, leave book suggestions in the actual reviews of the show, or just reply to the Substack, which is going out later today, we actually really appreciate it because I'm getting more into the idea that I should be reading fiction, but I definitely don't know any additional books off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't know where to start. So point me in the right direction, guys. Give us a list. Once again, great episode, so much to cover. So for our last quick bit here, Realignment Conference is still taking applications. We've got an amazing group of people who are going. I'm actually really pumped for the number of students and other people that are going. If there are any financial considerations, definitely just send us an email. We want to make sure there's a diverse, really interesting crowd there because this is a cool opportunity for us to actually interact with you as a listenership and build a community around all of this. So we're really excited. So go check in the show notes for the link to that application. And if you have not gotten back to you yet, please hit us up on Twitter or by email. And of course, a huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. Now to the episode. Jeff Seschel, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks, Marshall. Thanks for having me. It's really good to see you, Jeff. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Sagar. Great to meet you, too. Here's the obvious place to start where all of our listeners are going to be interested in. As a author of a new book about the origins of the American space program, what is your immediate reaction to the billionaire space race, especially in the context of Richard Branson's suborbital launch last weekend? Well, it's been fascinating, I think, for all of us to, to watch this play out. And really, it's just beginning. I mean, these are, this, these are the opening shots of the billionaire space race. And uh, it'll be fascinating to see where it goes. But in a way, I wonder if it's eclipsing uh, uh, attention uh, to, that ought to be paid to the other space race, which is the one that's developing between the United States and, and China. We've heard NASA Administrator Bill Nelson talk quite a bit about it, but I'm not sure that that one's capturing the public imagination to the extent of seeing Richard Branson and in short order Jeff Bezos and then Elon Musk go up into space. So that's an interesting point that you make there because, I mean, I follow this stuff closely. What is the U.S.-China space race look like? I mean, the your book, Mercury Rising, puts it in really stark terms. And the space race was two things. It was derivative of a Soviet want to outshine the United States to make us look like idiots amongst our European allies. And it it really was crystallized like within the context of the Berlin crisis. What is the China-U.S. space race? I mean, every once in a while, I read a Reuters AP headline that flashes across that's like, China launched a probe on the dark side of the moon. I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, like, I, you know, it's seems fine, like whatever. It doesn't seem revolutionary. And then NASA every once in a while sends, like the JPL sends something to Mars and they always try to build it up. You know, it's like, guys, you've been doing this since 1997. Sorry, like I just don't care anymore. Um, It just seems like very low energy um, if there is a space race there, Jeff. So contextualize it a little bit. Well, I think it's not low energy on China's part. I mean, China is is being very clear about its ambitions in space and not at all shy about voicing really grand ambitions in space. I mean, one of the leaders of their space program was out a couple of weeks ago on the heels of their success in putting a lander on Mars right after we put our lander on Mars, talking about how they're going to ferry 
numbers of human beings, not just a crew of a, a couple of people, but but large numbers of human beings ultimately to Mars. Now, of course, th that fantasy is decades and decades away, but th they're, they're being pretty bold in the vision that they're setting out, and no one doubts that they're willing to put a lot of resources toward it. And Got I think it. that maybe the best way uh, to, to understand it is to look back to something that John Kennedy said when he was running for president in 1960, and that was that to be second in space, and in this case, he was talking about the United States, because we were so far behind the Soviets at that point, to be second in space was to be second in the eyes of the world in science and technology, in military power, and in the larger struggle, the existential struggle between freedom and totalitarianism. And so some, some of those same contours we see uh, taking shape in the current uh, space rivalry, at the very least, with China. Hmm. That's really interesting. We were going to get to the Cold War stuff later, but it's just obviously there, so let's hit it here. How much did JFK's argument end up being true, right? Because by the end of that decade, the U.S. goes to the moon, but in the next few years, the U.S. obviously loses the war in Vietnam. Watergate, Watergate is a national and international disgrace. Set setbacks, the malaise of the seventies. How much did winning the space race end up actually affecting the course? I don't mean just scientific progress and development. Let's put that to the side because that's obvious. To the actual notion that nations across the world were looking for scientific advancement from the U.S. or the Soviets. How much did that end up being true? Uh, it's a great question, and and you're right to project forward into the 1970s and beyond when it seemed pretty clear that the fact that we had successfully placed a whole bunch of people by that point on the moon and brought them safely back to Earth um, didn't seem to matter at all in light of Watergate, in light of uh, the ongoing war in Vietnam and all the other problems that you mentioned. Um, but it's important to, to look at the space race in its original context, which was as an answer to the encroachment of Soviet power, really on every front, every battleground, every new arena. And space was seen as significant, firstly, as a potential uh, form for military conflict, but also as a test, a test of a nation's will, a test of a nation's capacity, a test of a nation's ability to meet uh, a tremendous challenge that, that, that humankind had never met before. And so th that competition uh, played out over the course of, of that decade. And it was a competition, as we know, that the United States won. Now, did that answer uh, other national security problems that would develop um, either in that period or later? No, no, it, it, it didn't at all. But it was absolutely crucial to establishing uh, American power, uh, projecting American power around the world. This was something that Kennedy understood very well. You know, it's funny, I'm listening to your response and I'm chiding myself because the obvious takeaway is that the space race mattered until it didn't matter. So there's a world where the US was beat to the moon by the Soviets and then the US would have kept going and then it would have kept going and going and going. But the fact that it was resoundedly won in terms of the race part, probably made that play is less of a factor, but it's easy to imagine. And you have shows like For All Mankind imagining this. It's easy to imagine a space race that went into the 70s, into the 80s. The public interest remains there. The national security implications are still there. And I wouldn't be making my point that, well, this didn't end up mattering. So why are we even talking about this? So thanks for the correction. <laughs> well, no, that's that's perfectly put that it, that it mattered until it didn't matter. I'm going to I'm going to remember that one. I'll, I'll quote you on that. Um, it really does capture something, but it did matter. It mattered considerably. I mean, I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, looking back from, again, from the perspective of 1960, 1961, 
this was a contest that played out in front of the eyes of the world, as, as we were saying before, not just uh, in, in front of our adversaries like the Soviet Union and the rest of the communist bloc, but also our own allies. And there was a poll taken. There was a Gallup poll taken right around the time of Kennedy's election of our allies. So Britain, France, West Germany. And they were asked uh, which of the two superpowers would be ahead militarily by the end of the 1960s. And by more than a two to one margin, our own allies said the Soviet Union would be ahead militarily by more than a two to one margin. And the principal reason for this, as the polls revealed, was because of what the world had seen the Soviets achieve in space. Now, experts would tell you then, and I can tell you now, I don't know if I'm a defense expert, but I've read some of this history and written some of it, that uh, the two things were not equal, they were not equivalent. And uh, even though missiles were carrying uh, human beings into space, uh, and some of the same missiles were supposed to carry nuclear payloads across the world, uh, the technology, the expertise that it took to do those things were not equivalent. But good luck telling anybody right. that in 1960, 1961. This gets to a key question I have and that we really want to focus in, which is what drives public interest in space? Because reading your book, I was struck by, you cited a poll um, around spending. And this was a real political problem, which is that Yuri Gregarin goes up in space the American public is fed up. People are tired of Sputnik and all that. But that doesn't mean they actually want to do anything about it. And so when I believe the poll that you cited said that whether uh, space was worth the $40 billion was like fifth in order of priorities. And that the four were like, we should fix our roads or something. Or we should, you know... Uh, I forget what the other ones were. And I was shocked by that because you transpose that with... Later on the book, how it ends, you know, shocker, spoiler, spoiler. for everyone, yeah. is uh, John Glenn goes to space and orbits, and there are more people who come out in the streets of New York City to see him, two million more than Charles Lindbergh in 1927. So once it happens, it captures the imagination. Uh, I know there's that famous thing about, you know, 1968, probably one of the worst years in modern American history, but... December, Apollo 8 goes around the moon, and there's that famous letter being like, thank you, Apollo 8, you saved 1968. The space program becomes this like beacon of hope and will and light, but it's not like people actually wanted it in the beginning. So just talk to us about that, like through your through your reading of like what drives the public interest in space? Do you just have to do it before people will care? Like why is it that they don't care um, where when it's not happening? I can think we're kind of in a malaise situation like that right now. Well, we are, and and it's been long lasting. And maybe it's starting to change now with popular interest and what the billionaires are doing in space. Maybe it's not, um, but it was absolutely the case early in the in the space race. Uh, there was a strange uh, contradiction or a strange paradox that you could observe at that time. There was tremendous public interest in what was going on in space. There was kind of pop cultural interest. I mean, if you just look at the B movies being made at that time and, and the sci-fi novels being written, there was a tremendous interest in the idea of space exploration. It was a lot of fun to talk about until it wasn't fun anymore. Um, Marshall, now I'm paraphrasing what you said earlier. It was fun until it wasn't fun. And uh, when the Soviets succeeded in sending the first satellite into orbit, in Sputnik, of course, in, in 1957, all of a sudden it was extremely scary. And the fantasies became lurid and, and, and terrifying. Um, the notion of the Soviets, and this wasn't just 
stuff that people would talk about. This, this is um, what you would read in the New York Times uh, with defense experts being quoted. The notion that the Soviets were going to build a nuclear base on the moon that would lie outside the, the reach of, of U.S. defenses, that the Soviets would build a space station that would just sit in orbit, hanging above the United States like a sword of Damocles, again, armed to the teeth with nuclear missiles. So there, there was a sense of tremendous anxiety that the United States needed to counter this threat, that the United States needed to be credible in space and to challenge Soviet dominance there, because once they really firmly established it, there was the very big question of what they would then be able to do here on Earth. So the public did believe that, that the United States should compete in space. Though, of course, Sagar, you're exactly right. There was a, a poll taken on the eve of Kennedy's pledge that the United States should go to the moon by the end of the decade. And then there was a poll taken afterwards. And the public was not captivated by the idea of going to the moon. And maybe that's the distinction. I mean, the public certainly believed the United States should be competitive in space. Did the public believe that the U.S. should spend $40 billion or more to go to the moon in some kind of symbol symbolic gesture? The answer for quite a while was no, not really. Yeah. Here's something that I'm wondering, Gasagra and I got in a, our most heated argument in months over text <laughs> about this yesterday. What is space and who owns it? Because to give context to this, we were debating whether or not the billionaire ownership of these vehicles and the energy represents a semi-quasi-public goods dilution. But this is where it gets complicated. It's, it's space, though. No one owns it in the traditional sense, but it's not the oceans because the oceans still have you know, the U.S. has the U.S. goes beyond the coastline. There are international waters. Um, and what I told Sagar was I would be concerned if Elon Musk were to declare a segment around his star-like satellites, his property or or a billionaire, the first billionaire to get to Mars. Let's say that happens. We're to say this is now planet Musk. That seems to be a more direct example of ownership and property there. But I think part of the reason why the language and the debates around billionaires versus the public in space gets so incoherent is we don't quite have a useful metaphor for actually understanding what space is. So can you just, especially in the context of the 50s and the 60s, I mean, the U.S. doesn't declare that the moon is now the 51st state, so I'm sure there was a bit of a discussion there too. Can you just really inform us over, and sorry, you, you want to cut in, I think, so please. Well, I, I was going to say, Jeff, I know there is an important part of the book where I forget what it is. Khrushchev uses a, a term of art around the moon, which lights up Washington, where people are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I believe it was territory or oh, something like that. It was, so, it was a pennant. Pennant. That's what pennant. it was. Pennant. They, they dropped a, um, there was a, there was a um, metallic pennant, which they, um, they basically sent right. a vehicle and it hit the moon. And there was debate whether that could actually, but we'll let you actually right. talk, around Jeff, ownership. because yeah, you I wrote just, the book. I, I knew that that was it, important. So I know that that could be important to, to your answer. Well, well, you're absolutely right, Sagar. It, it is important, and I'm glad you raised it. It's it's kind of an incredible story, and it shows uh, uh, how well Khrushchev understood the symbolism of what it was that that they were trying to achieve in space. That the Soviets uh, were first in pretty much everything um, for for the first uh, four years or so of the space race, and, and they were the first to crash land an object on the surface of the moon. They, they couldn't yet manage a soft landing on the lunar surface, but the fact that they were able to land anything there at all was remarkable. And what they chose to land was, was loaded with these, as, as, as you said, Marshall, they, were, they called them pennants. They were little Soviet flags. 
and they probably vaporized when it exploded and, and hit the surface of the moon. Nonetheless, Khrushchev talked a lot about it. He talked to President Eisenhower about it when he came to visit the United States on a big tour that year. And, and there was actually something of a, of a debate uh, among experts in international law that if a Soviet flag effectively um, had been planted in this manner on the moon, did the Soviets claim the moon? Uh, and uh, the answer was no, that, that you can't go ahead and do that. But the fact that this was a conversation Really Wait, sorry, goes to quick, this quick interruption. Yeah. Why can't you? Right. Well, like, why, 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 why? Because that's actually, why can't you just do that? Well, why that's an interesting but... question. <laughs> I, I, if now I, 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 um, this is, I'm out of my area of expertise, but if I remember this conversation right, I think the idea was that international law did not extend to the surface of the moon. So the norms and customs here on earth, the idea that planting a flag in uncharted territory gave you ownership. Um, didn't apply. And um, the Soviets didn't press the point. But I think, what, what is that What is that cliche, possession is nine-tenths of the law? Yes. Um, going to your question about uh, Elon Musk and the others, uh, they may not actually uh, get to own, in a literal sense, a, uh, an area uh, in low Earth orbit or on the surface of the moon. But if they are there and others are not, do they effectively own it? And I think that's that's really it's first mover status in yep. space is what they're looking to establish. And so that's, Jeff, kind of where I was coming from, which is that, look, I mean, calling a public good utility, it, it's, it doesn't make any sense. Like it, it is space. But I think about it. In terms, so I've read a lot about the frontier, um, both in America and in general, and if you own the only way to get out to the frontier, you own the frontier. Um, and like, that's that's just how it is. The government owned the railroad. The railroads are the ones who set the price. So like, who had the real power? And that was a huge titanic struggle in American politics for a long time, probably what, 50, 60 years. Same thing um, in terms of the California gold rush. If you look at how property, that's actually one of the, my favorite examples of like how property rights develops over time whenever it comes to density and all of that, these were Mexican territories, like not really American. You're plowing something out of the ground. It's kind of like you get there and there's no police force. There's zero, there's like a hundred army in the entire state. That's why I look at public investment in space as so vitally important, which is that if SpaceX, and look, I have no disrespect to SpaceX. They've done incredible work. I mean, in terms of reducing the cost of satellites, putting astronauts on the International Space Station, all that. But at the end of the day, SpaceX is a commercial company. And they're, you know, Elon Musk has a Weibo profile where he posts about China and all that. He wishes the CCP happy, you know, 100th anniversary. Fine. He's a citizen. He can do whatever he wants. That being said, there should probably, in my view, be another way to get to space that doesn't rely on these people. And that's where I get very concerned. It seems to me, Jeff, that in the history of especially modern flight, that innovation comes from the public sector and then is built on for other uses commercially. SR-71. Um, I mean, it, every you know, the X-1 in terms of breaking the sound barrier, all these things. Then Boeing, Northrop, and all these other people, they license technology. They figure out, you know, maybe the Concorde will work, something like that. This seems to be the first flipped case 
where I get concerned. I, am I thinking about it correctly? Like, how, how do you look at the same situation? Well, I think you are. I, I think there's going to be a question, and, and it's actually probably pressing already, uh, who holds the cards in this relationship? I mean, back in the, in the 1960s, of course, private industry had an enormous role in the space program. The government was not building Atlas rockets in a government factory somewhere. And we all know that, that there are companies that to this day are, are rightly boasting about their role in, in building the uh, the Eagle, building the lunar lander, building yeah, Grumman, the, the rovers, all the rest. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and they're rightly proud of that. And the government uh, recognized um, that it was not going to build these things itself. Um, and so private industry was enlisted and they received massive government con uh, contracts and so forth. But I think that what you're seeing now is um, uh, some real question about NASA's uh, capacity to, to hold the reins in that relationship. It's going to be relying on on SpaceX on this commercial venture to to you know ferry our our astronauts to the space station as we've already seen and ultimately to the moon, uh, and so uh, again with NASA perpetually underfunded at least relative to its needs and its ambitions, and SpaceX and Blue Origin and the others wildly capitalized over time, and increasingly dominant you may well actually have holding the cards someone like Elon Musk, who has a very different take on on the power of China, as you yes. pointed out, Sagar, than the United States government. And, and that is a, a matter, I think, of some concern. The thing, one thing I'll add, Sagar, which is that, and we're mixing planes of existence here, so it gets a little difficult, but I mean, look at the airplane, the airplane Wilbur and Orville, like that was a, that yeah. was a private endeavor. That's why I said so, modern flight. That's well, why I said wait, modern so yeah, you flight. cheat. Yeah, that was yeah. a bit of a cheat, but you know, but the way, <laughs> but I think part of the way to think about this though is flight was actually, there was, it's like, just like you said, Jeff, there was no government plane. Um, there was private commercial aviation, government would contract things. They would contract um, the construction of planes, even, you know, military aircraft, but there's still an FAA. The government still controls the licensing and the procedure there. So from my perspective, I don't care to a certain degree who is building the actual um, commercial vehicles. And I frankly probably prefer the private sector to do it. What I would care about, and this is what I was getting to earlier at the point about who actually controls the plane of existence that you're talking about. I care that the U.S. still controls launches in the continental United, well, even in Guam mm -hmm. to other, I care about the U S government controls launches. So in that part, so here's a good way of summing up what the tensions we're getting at here, Jeff, the defining reality of the space race during the sixties, it was purely just this quasi military, very um, nation state centric vision. But the issue here, it's like you said, these are companies that are venture backed, highly capitalized because there's this idea that you could actually make money doing this. So that dynamic was not at all present in the 60s and 70s. How do you compare and contrast then the commercial opportunity today and the actual, and we were talking about this at the start of the episode, the actual nature of what the competition looked like in the 60s? Well, I think the commercial opportunity right now, um, particularly because it, it really transcends, as you've been describing, it, it transcends serving the government uh, and, and filling these orders, essentially, that, that come from the government, whether from the military or from the civilian space agency like NASA. And so the ambition is greater and the capacity is so much greater. I mean, it's, it is remarkable. I mean, Sagar, as you said before, no disrespect to, to, to yeah. SpaceX. I mean, look what they are able to do. Uh, I mean, the, these... Um, uh, 
even simply, and this is only one of many things you could list, the idea of these reusable boosters. Um, I mean, e even watching them today, it seems uh, fantastical that these things falling back to earth can right themselves and land themselves and be reused. It's incredible. And so the, the opportunity is enormous. And I think that Marshall, to the point that, that you were just making, um, the degree to which the, the federal government is able to exercise um, some, some degree of, of control or influence over what goes on up there. I mean, it's already, I think, diminishing a, a little bit. I, there, there was a, a terrific article written by a terrific reporter for the Washington Post, Christian Davenport, you probably yep. know, who writes a lot about these issues. And uh, there is now some talk that the um, reasonably enough that, that space tourism has has gone so far beyond um, what anybody anticipated um, in, in terms of its capability and, and its timetable that the government is already playing catch up, asking itself whether uh, it, it will be able to regulate this at all. I mean, the, the government is already on the back foot. And so you're going to see this sector, I mean, we're watching it be created in real time uh, with the government still caught up in this question of whether it can play a role in, in shaping this at all uh, or whether it's going to be the Wild West up there. Uh, and see, so that's where I get the most concern, Jeff. Yeah. Which is, and this is what I'm talking about with the power relationship. Yeah, you can control launch all you want. What are you going to do when you get up there? Oh, also, um, space is accessible from anywhere. You don't have to launch from the United States. You can launch from Brazil. Actually, Brazil is a pretty good place to launch, apparently, um, because it's the equator or something, and I don't understand it. But physics says... Brazil's a great place to launch. Grenada, um, you know, China apparently has got a pretty good launch site. You don't have to launch from here. Um, I could easily see some, like, African nation right on the equator being like, come on, baby, you can launch whatever you want, you can do anything, and once you get up there, it's an enforcement issue. Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to find them? Okay, I mean, they, they don't... They're not based here. Um, are you going to shoot something at them? Well, you better have a pretty good capability. And last thing I checked, we have one X-37 or whatever it's called, the military um, aircraft. It gets very dice. And this is why I think the Frontier is probably the best analogy in terms of like whoever has the gun and knows how to use it, they're the man in charge, especially when you're thousands and thousands and thousands of miles out. I do want to talk though, about personalities. Um, this is a, you know, this is the this is the most compelling part of the right stuff, and uh, even in the book when we're talking about John Glenn. I mean, these men were demigods um, to the American public. Lindbergh. I actually read a biography of Lindbergh for the same reason because I, I don't think we can actually comprehend that level of celebrity in the United States anymore. Like LeBron James is famous, but he's not actually that famous compared to how these people were. It was a whole other world of monoculture, only three channels, radio. Like it, it, it's, it's so difficult to comprehend. Why do you think that that doesn't rate anymore? Like John Glenn was so famous that he couldn't go anywhere. He became a United States Senator. He was a household name. Neil Armstrong was the same thing. The astronauts of Apollo 8 were the same thing in their time. Lovell and, and all those people. Uh, yet today, the personalities obviously are the billionaires, but there's kind of a cult of personality there anyway. Nobody really knows who Bill Nelson is unless you're from Florida. Um, a lot of people in Florida probably didn't even know he was an astronaut, technically. Um, and so, like... What, what do you make of the loss of the personality in the space debate and what it means in terms of going forward? 
Well, I think space exploration has been democratized um, and also routinized to to a, a real extent. So certainly that was the case with the space shuttle. And, and as we know, the public really lost interest um, aside from those horrific accidents. After the first few flights, people didn't really tune in anymore. And, and Congress, accordingly, uh, didn't ever give NASA during those years the funding that it, that it was looking for. I, I think it, it is very difficult to, to reconstruct but but maybe possible to imagine what that national culture was like, as you were describing, Sagar, in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. There was a sense, actually, um, that we no longer had the sort of heroes uh, that Lindbergh had been for, for many Americans decades earlier. And the astronauts come onto the scene in 1959. They're selected and they're introduced to the public. And there is an instant fascination. They're on the cover repeatedly of Life magazine. They're in the newsreels. And it's important also to remember there were only seven of them. Only seven Americans had ever been astronauts yet. And so the fascination with them and their families and their lives was wholly out of proportion to anything they had even done. In fact, at that first press conference, watching the reporters literally, I mean, literally climbing over one another to try to get close to the stage to get a better shot. Uh, and better access, like it was the the red carpet, you know, at, at, at the Oscars. Uh, Wally Shira, one of the Mercury 7, turned one of the others and said, we haven't even done anything yet. And it was true. It was wildly out of proportion. But what they were being asked to do was incredible. The notion that these were flesh and blood human beings who were in their 30s and they were married and for middle American, middle-class white Americans. They looked just like the, the guy that you played football with uh, down the street or went to high school with. It was incredible to think that these were the guys who were bringing the, the new era into focus and that they were brave enough uh, to, 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 to bring it into being, to will it into being. And I don't know how you create something like that today. The monoculture, as, as you described it, no longer exists. There are a lot yeah. of good reasons for that. Um, um, there's a fragmentation now. And yes, yeah, somebody like LeBron James supersedes all of this and has a fame um, that just about nobody else can match today. But, but, but it wasn't just fame, of course. It was connected to what we were describing earlier, which is this intense and almost existential fear that they would save us from the Soviet domination of the heavens. Yeah. Can you talk about the relationship between the space program and war? Because the part that I knew this in the back of my head, but you do a really great job of just writing this that just really strikes you is that a lot of these guys were fighter jockeys who'd killed people. You know, John Glenn killed people, you know, Literally, that's a, yeah. and it's weird, yeah. it's, and it's weird to think about, but you know, in, in the Korean war, in world war two, I'm wondering if, the bigger issue here, and once again, this isn't an actual issue because the lack of the whole great power war thing is a huge, really big, probably the biggest accomplishment of the whole post-World War II thing, is the is the severing of space exploration and war and national security and the mentality that is going to go through a country where one day... You're in World War II, and then there's the candy bombers in Berlin, and then the next day the Soviets are dropping a hydrogen bomb, and then we're fighting a terrible war in Korea, and the Soviets have this Sputnik thing, and maybe they could drop nukes on you. There's a missile gap. That environment is the perfect hothouse environment for building a space program. 
it doesn't seem like to our earlier conversation, the post 1969 space, it doesn't seem like that's where we're going to, and I don't want it to, and I don't want us to feel that way. I don't want, I don't, I want us to be involved in space, but I don't want the way to get there is people are afraid um, the CCP is going to drop nukes on us. So I'm just, right. you just reflect on all of that because it's just something I viscerally felt while reading the book. Yeah, you know, this was um, really something that um, both Eisenhower and Kennedy felt very strongly was that we should not militarize space. And um, it's important to recognize that before the creation of NASA in 1958, there were multiple space programs here in the United States. The Air Force had a space program, the Navy had one, and the Army had one. And they all had their different notions of what they were going to ask their, their, their soldiers or their pilots to go do in space. And it usually involved military combat in one form or another. It was just seen as an extension of military service. And, uh, you know, I, it's not for nothing that in the, the subtitle of my book, I describe it as a new battleground. That was very much the way they saw it. Eisenhower uh, was, uh, who later, as we know, warned about the, the, the rise of the military industrial complex. He was not at all enamored of the military plans for space, about the idea of building these space jets that would fight like, you know, Buck Rogers, as, as Eisenhower's science advisor derided it. And, and so he created NASA in part to pull what was called man in space away from the military services uh, and invest it in a civilian space agency that would be effective and that would be able to establish a presence in space, but it would do it in the interest of peace for all mankind, as that, that cliche of the Space Act put it. Kennedy felt very strongly the same way, that the most effective deterrent to the Soviets in space was to show that we, like they, were able to do just about anything that we wanted to do in space. It was not to fill, build a fleet of uh, space-based fighter jets uh, that could engage in military combat up there. So, But there is a bit of a, a contradiction here as well. We talked earlier about the contradiction in pu public opinion. There's a contradiction here too, because it's not for, for nothing again, Marshall, as, as you mentioned, that they selected only military test pilots for this responsibility. That had more to do with a skill set than anything else, but also a mentality, because this was a, a, a theater of the Cold War. And even if we didn't have any plans to fire a bunch of guns up there and missiles and so forth, at the very least, we wanted to establish capacity at the highest level. I mean, in my opinion, the test pilot thing was the right thing. I mean, given everything I've read in terms of the amount of stuff that went wrong, I mean, I think Neil Armstrong would be dead if he wasn't a test pilot because I forget what it was, Gemini 8 or whatever, whenever they were spinning and he literally had to, you know, push against G-Force in order to write his craft. I, it would have been a total disaster if he hadn't been somebody who hadn't dealt with that, you know, a million different times in a civilian capacity. I do want to get to something that you said, and this really struck me, which is that I know it's hokey, you know, it's very uh, it's very unfashionable to talk about America, the goodness and exceptionalism today, but I was really struck by the way the Soviets handled their initial uh, accomplishments in space. And it's a good view into how bad things could have gone if they had beat us, frankly, to the moon, which is that they did not see this as a peace for all mankind, clearly looked at it as a military objective, wanted explicitly to use it to demonstrate the primacy of the Soviet system over everyone else. And the reason I want to put that in context is, well, 
we have a similar regime in China. Frankly, a much more competent, much more scientifically, uh, much more scientifically literate, and much more commercially viable in probably every single way. Put that in context, which is that how did the Soviets view their role in space? And look, did America see potential military capability? Yeah. Did we, when we landed on the moon, what did we say? We came in peace for all mankind. There's no way a cosmonaut says it. In fact, it would be pretty much exactly the opposite, you know, for the revolution or whatever. Put it a little bit into context. Because because the Soviets fell away so quickly, we forget about how explicitly they looked at their role in space and what that would have meant for the entire, I mean, for, for everything. That, that is absolutely right. You know, they, they made some noises early on about peaceful purposes in space, but they did it with sort of a wink. And then they stopped winking over time and they were plainer and plainer about their purposes. And uh, for example, so Yuri Gagarin, as we discussed, was the first uh, human being in space. He orbited the Earth once in, in April 1961. In August of that year, the Soviets sent a second man to orbit the Earth and he orbited for 24 hours. He, he right. orbited 17 and a half times. This is German Titov. And when Titov came back safely to Earth and had a press conference, uh, there were a lot of illusions and, and they were not subtle uh, to the maneuverability of the spacecraft, which was a lie, to the fact that he flew the spacecraft back to Earth and landed it, which was also a lie, mm -hmm. and to the capability of the spacecraft to be armed. Now, they mentioned this by way of saying our purposes are peaceful. I mean, we didn't arm the spacecraft. We could have armed the spacecraft, but we didn't. That, too, was a lie. But again, it's very clear that um, at this point, the Soviets were were more and more explicitly seeing their capabilities in space as a projection of military power. And ultimately, it, it, it's, it certainly would have, would have gone in that direction. That, that's right. I mean, the Soviets had something very different to prove to the rest of the world than the United States did. And so another reason why it was so important uh, here to establish our competency uh, and to counter Soviet power um, so that they did not have sole dominion over uh, over either uh, low Earth orbit or, or ultimately the moon. One second, Marshall. I just have a follow up. Is is that would it be fair to say that that's not dissimilar from the way the Chinese approach space today? I don't hear a lot of. I mean, it's probably not the same in terms of you know Chinese domination or, or whatever. But in terms of the impetus, it's the same thing to prove the primacy of the Chinese state over the United States with zero qualms around going you know for peaceful pro, uh, peaceful purposes. Absolutely. Again, they they um they are not saying so directly, and um, I can't speak to what the you know Chinese military plans are in space. But I'll say a couple things. One is that China, like Russia, in fact, has invested very heavily in what are called counter space capabilities in in recent decades, which is the ability to uh, destroy or, or disrupt the satellite systems on which just about everything depends, um, uh, from communications to military reconnaissance here on Earth. And uh, th th that is actually another space gap that has been opening up. The United States has its own counter space capabilities, but it, China and Russia have advanced by leaps and bounds. They put a huge priority on, on all of that. But it is, again, Sagar, as you said, talking about their plans for the moon, talking about their plans for Mars is a projection of their power here on Earth. And they are making very clear that they believe that in the long run, their system is more viable 
that uh, that their system is better able to drive these sort of massive leaps in, in technological advancement. And um, that's that's the bet that, that they're making with the United States right now. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, what, whatever it is that they want to build on the moon, uh, their permanent presence on the moon, which is something that they're planning, uh, is something that uh, will speak very loudly about their capabilities here on Earth. And that is part of the, the, the that is part of the mission, clearly. Since we're talking about the militarization of space, I'd like to pivot us to Space Force, obviously, um, with a couple of quick comments before. I There's obviously a lot of things to dunk on during the Trump administration at 15 different levels, but I feel as if Space Force really got caught up in a lot of just Trump era things where, like, once again, like, can you argue about presentation and insignia, but a very serious, very important idea got basically mixed into silly Twitter things. So you every once in a while will just see tweets from folks basically poo-pooing the idea of a space force as this Trumpian thing, but I don't think that it all fits in that category. Um, so I'd like your thoughts on space force, but secondly, and you don't have to have thoughts on this, but um, if people can make out my bookshelf in the background, they'll know I'm a huge science fiction fan. And my actual beef with the space force is I do not like how the Space Force is more akin to an Air Force than a Navy, because I think space is more akin to a naval thing. Um, so space, it, it should there should be admirals, there shouldn't be generals. That's just my own personal beef, but I'm just curious. Let's start with just the the fun one. Like, What do you think of, is, 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 is space, if it's militarized, is it more like the air or is it more like the ocean? Um, and then um, what do you just think about the broader structure there? Well, you know, John Kennedy's in your corner here, as you probably know, he referred to space as this new ocean. He was a Navy man himself, so maybe he mm-hmm. thought of it that way. Um, I think that it, it's been hard for a lot of us, and I'll cop to this, to really evaluate the, the Space Force, uh, given who created it and given its manner of presentation and the the silliness and unseriousness about the whole thing. Um, and again, in terms of the way that it was pitched to the Congress and to the American people, the grandiosity of, of that president's uh, ambitions. And yet, and yet, um, its insignia aside and its presentation aside, as you said, uh, I, I think there are um, uh, there are reasons that President Biden, in evaluating the fate and the future of the Space Force, said that he gave it his full support. Um, it did not seem to be a, a grudging acknowledgement. I mean, he didn't just say support; he said full support, uh, which counts for something, and um, and will continue to. And I think that um, space has been militarized. Um, I mean, we talked earlier about uh, Eisenhower's resistance to the idea, Kennedy's resistance to the idea. Ultimately, the United States doesn't get to set the terms uh, for, for what happens in space. And what I described earlier, the counter space capabilities of Russia and China, and they're not the only ones. I made clear that the space, uh, in a sense, was militarized a long time ago. And it's not clear that the United States took those threats uh, all that seriously. So, uh, and, and so the Space Force is part of a broader correction that I think is happening in the U.S. Uh, with regard to the U.S. posture in space. And certainly uh, the, the new administrator, Bill Nelson, sees it that way. Um, his deputy, Pam Melroy, who's a former astronaut, uh, said during her confirmation hearings that, that China's aim was to, to take uh, space supremacy away from the United States by one means and another. Uh, and so I, I think there is, a, again, a, a broader shift in the posture and the Space Force is part of it and I think will now continue to be part of it. 
That's so interesting because we keep going to the early days of manned flight back on Earth, and I'm just thinking, to what degree do we even, as a public, as a government, have a choice in these matters? So, for example, the second that someone, I think the first combat use of an airplane was in like North Africa, and I think 1911 by Italian forces as part of their broader colonialism bit. The second that happens, the second someone chucks a hand grenade from a plane, there's no more debate. There's no more, we see the heavens and they are, and they're just, you know, a place of goodness and transportation and wonder. It's over. It, it, it's over. So there was no real choice there. So to what degree, because you, you kind of got that in your answer, to what degree is there even any choice at all in these spaces? To what degree can you even say anymore? No, we don't think that militarization space makes any sense. Well, it's a great point. Um, and, and maybe it's, it's similar to what we were discussing earlier about the commercialization of space. Um, if, uh, if, 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 it, if someone goes ahead and does it, uh, then that is your new reality and you have to address it in one way or another. And I think that's the case here that there, there are international accords, there are rules, um, about what's supposed to happen in space and what's not supposed to happen in space. Um, but it, it was, I think it was last year that, that a, a Soviet counterspace satellite maneuvered itself around and, and showed, uh, really made no secret of what it was doing to demonstrate its ability to uh, essentially uh, draw in another satellite and and, and disable it. And, sorry, and then do you mean, for, do you mean China? You said Soviet, do you mean a Chinese? I'm sorry. Mean, I'm sorry. I meant the Russians actually. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I, I was like, I'm lost which, in the 1960s. <laughs> in this case, I was talking about the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe, maybe you'll let me get away Soviet. with it, yeah. but uh, I, I need to remember which decade I'm, I'm living in. Um, but you know, when, when Russia is going to go ahead and do something like that, and they, they, they maneuvered around communication satellites, broadcast satellites belonging to, to lots of other nations, including the United States, just to, again, make clear to everyone that they could do that. Uh, not that there was probably any question. Well, that's your reality. And again, um, you have to live in it and you have to react to it. And, and I, I think that that, again, is the larger shift that, that Administrator Nelson is looking to affect here. And not just him, by the way, but both the president and the defense secretary uh, have, have talked about that as well. Mm. A lot of people dunked on me. Uh, at the time, I tweeted that uh, 100 years from now, it could be that Space Force is the most important thing that Trump ever did. So I, I still maintain that. <laughs> I am curious for the, on this. What's the future of space flight program? Um, it just feels like the last 40 years, SpaceX aside, has just been a giant wash. Uh, there's a great line at the end of this book I love. I think it's called Man Mushed and Something by Andrew Chaikin. I forget the uh, full book. Anyway, it's a history of the Apollo program. And he just talks about how at the time it seemed like this relentless sprint forward if you think of 1960 to where we were in 1969, and it seemed as if it would be a linear trajection or, or a linear trajectory of just continual optimism development, and then it just wasn't. It's like this weird thing where this blip of accomplishing the most incredible feat in mankind's history, and then you just let it go in favor of whatever the hell was happening while Jimmy Carter was president and then Reagan came in and then we had space and, and let's I I mean look no disrespect I think the space station is kind of lame at this point been doing it for like 40 years 
Um, and it's like <laughs> we said no disrespect a lot this episode. Yeah. That was the yeah, most disrespectful. Like, look, no disrespect, out of all of them. But you know, like, <laughs> like how many times can I watch a guy drink water in space? Like, okay, the internet connection's better. I've been watching it since 1990. It's just not that cool anymore. And when we think about that, Jeff, is it going to be along that trajectory? As in what you're saying, counter space develop. Look, nobody gets jazzed about counter space and satellites. And, you know, I've heard things about our, like satellites being able to have arms on them that can grab space junk and throw it one another. Okay, that's cool. You know, and, and like I said, same thing, you know, yes, Mars Curiosity, cool. We also had Pathfinder in like 97. Um, everything just seems to be like a V2, V3 upgrade instead of the leap from suborbital flight, orbital flight moon orbit, moonwalk. I mean, ro- at the end of 1971, we have men driving on the surface of the moon. And how long were they there? Like a week or something? I mean, they were there for a long time um, compared to Apollo. It's just amazing. And it's like this blip. So what do you think that the trajectory of space flight, of space exploration and more is going to look like maybe this decade and, and even further out? Well, I'd love to say that I know, but I'll, I'll give you my gut. And it feels to me that um, we are finding our way back to that trajectory. Um, there was a, a nice linearity to it, as you described in the 1960s, where we had an object. I mean, once the, the goal, I mean, at first the goal was was orbiting the Earth. But even at that, that time, there was discussion about going to the moon and, and going on to the planets. And that was the, the trajectory we were seen to be following. And step by step, incrementally over the course of the 1960s, we did it. We got as far as the moon repeatedly. Each mission built on the last one, as you said, to the point that they were spending... Uh, you know, a, a surprising amount of time up there and driving around and going, you know, pretty far from the lander and uh, the capabilities were, were expanding with, with each mission. And then it stopped and then it, it stopped. And it's not as if uh, there were no advancements after that point. Um, but the, the narrative no longer excited anyone um, and it no longer excited congressional appropriators. And the difficulty that NASA had, and in fact, uh, just the nation generally had in in justifying mission after mission and all its expense and all its risk um, meant that, you know, it may well be that as, as we look back at this period between the seventies and maybe uh, maybe this present decade, that it will be seen as the great half century lull in space exploration. And again, that's not to take anything away from all of those who have been involved in advancing the frontiers of science. And there's a lot that they have done, particularly in the exploration of cosmos and the planets and so forth. But in terms of human exploration of space, which I think what we're talking about here, we do seem to be finding our ambition again. We do seem to be finding a reason to be ambitious. And this Cold War competition that we're engaged in right now with China that we've been discussing may be a prompt to that. And the the expansion of our capabilities, too, allows us to dream bigger and literally go farther. So um, I think the next couple of decades are going to be incredibly exciting uh, on all of these frontiers. Yeah, I hope so. So here's my last big question. I have mixed emotions whenever I read a book like this, especially towards the early parts, when they are describing the 50s and the early 60s, very new frontier JFK parts of this, because insert very obvious statement that America had horrible racial policies. Sagar and I are obviously not um, doing any of this yeah. if we are back in the 50s wouldn't, technology. Wouldn't have been a, lot, a whole a lot of yeah, fun in 1957. We're, 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 not, us, we're, not, we're not doing this on 15 <laughs> different levels. 
But just for a second, there's something confident about that period. There's something confident. There's something, it, it's funny, you, you write a lot about, Sagar used the word, it's a good word, like the, the hokiness of John Glenn sometimes, the very sort of aw shucks, leave it to beaverness, which can be kind of cringy and annoying sometimes, but it's also just not sarcastic. And yeah. when it comes to ambition and these sort of projects, actually, that's kind of what you need. Um, and that it's, it's very uncynical in a way that, once again, if we look at, pop culture products about the 50s usually there's a degree of cynicism around it so like how nice were things actually you know how accessible was john glenn's you know neighborhood all that part i get that but is there a way you think that that spirit the good parts of it could be retained because what's so frustrating about the latter half of the 60s and the 70s is that the country very clearly has to acknowledge the parts of that picture that weren't true the parts of that picture that were corrupt that were all of these huge problems. We, we described them at the start of the episode, but I feel like we lost the ability to reconstitute the good parts of it under a more inclusive, under a more honest vision. So how do you just think about that? Because like, I don't want to just have the takeaway be like, man, the fifties were awesome and everything sucks now because it's much more complicated than that. So how do right. you, how do you just think about this dynamic? Well, I mean, it's a really fascinating, really important question. I, I think we are, are are obviously much more capable today of acknowledging complexity, of acknowledging, um, if not always addressing inequity, uh, than they were in that in that period of time. And it is absolutely the case that um, John Glenn, being described as all American, um, was all American in a very traditional white middle-class, middle-American sense. And uh, nobody at that time would ever question the adjective all-American um, as actually needing to represent all of America. Mm -hmm. And we know that all of America was not reflected in the space program and was not reflected in these discussions of, of national priorities. And that uh, we know, of course, that black astronauts, uh, well, there weren't black astronauts, that they were not given the opportunity, that the women were not given the opportunity and, and so forth. And so all of that is very glaring in retrospect. In fact, it was glaring to a lot of Americans who didn't have a voice at the time. Uh, and so I think it is important always to keep that perspective on um, the notion of national unity. Uh, as we see it in, in that in, in that particular period, and that there was never the degree of national unity that there appeared. Um, all that being said, what was it that, that John Glenn represented? Uh, that that a, a set of values, a set of pride in the country, a set of belief in the country's capabilities, uh, a, a confidence that uh, that that scientific exploration would yield benefits not just for white middle America, but really for all mankind. Uh, and that these are the elements of uh, John Glenn's vision and John Kennedy's vision that I think really carry today and that we should not be incapable of, of, of renewing as we think about what we're trying to do in space and what it means here on Earth. I, I don't think that uh, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of Americans uh, who share those those beliefs and, and we hope. It's always hard to say this without sounding naive, but we hope that they they don't um, uh, they're not casualties of our politics. Yeah, I thank can't think of a better way to end this, Jeff. This has been so uh, such a great conversation. Can you just tell everyone uh, where you would like for them to go buy the book, where they can find you, all of that? 
Thanks very much. Um, great. Um, I've got a website for the book. It is Mercury Rising BK for book, mercuryrisingbk.com, uh, or you can find your way to me and the book um, on Twitter at Mercury Rising BK. Uh, and uh, I'll be uh, posting uh, news and information about all, all the stuff, uh, a lot of the stuff we're, we're discussing Perfect. here. This has been a fantastic, far-reaching conversation. I'm grateful yeah, you brought uh, We want to do as much as we can. It'll be available in our bookshop as well. I tweeted out the link. I'm going to tweet it out again. I'll make sure we put as many eyeballs as possible on this. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks to both of you. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and most importantly, realignment conference signups. Not everyone who applies is going to be able to make it, but we'll definitely put stuff together in the future because we're getting so many awesome people who are reaching out. And of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.